Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks Without Eric Bischoff. Unfortunately, I'm a bearer of bad news. This is going to be a best of this week because our main man, Eric, is down for the count with what he described as the worst case of food poisoning he thinks he's ever had. And that doesn't sound very fun at all. So it was impossible for us to get this episode out on time this week for you. We promise to make it up to you with a bonus episode in the coming weeks. But right now, Eric is, uh, well, hating life. I think that's fair to say. I guess it could be worse. He could be stranded on a tarmac halfway across the world. Either way, we are thrilled to be here with you today. And I know Eric is going to be with us this weekend in Baltimore. Man, it's a who's who this weekend for StarCast 4 in Baltimore. And if you're listening to this show and you're a fan of the old school, it reads like a who's who. Not just the Hall of Famers like Sting, but Sting with a photo op you've never been able to get before. In the red, white, and blue, just like he wore at Great American Bash when he won the world title. How about the Great Muda in paint, old school style? We've also got Lex Luger, Magnum TA, Ronnie Garvin, Ricky Steamboat, Arn Anderson. The list goes on and on. Maybe you're an ECW guy. How about Taz, Sandman, Raven? But all the fun WCW stuff too. The Shockmaster, the Yeti. Are you kidding? Robocop? What are we doing? And of course, all the great stars of AEW. And you know our main man, Eric Bischoff, will be there. But maybe the coup de grace, the best part of the whole weekend, Jim Crockett on stage in his first and maybe last personal appearance ever. This is the most historically significant panel that's ever been done. Nobody's ever been able to pull Jim Crockett out of retirement and get him to talk about the good old days of Crockett promotions, but man, we're making it happen. And you need to join us. If you can't make it to Starcast, no trouble, go to starcastonfight.com. And if you pre-order by this Friday, you'll not only get Starcast four, but you'll get Starcast one, two, and three. That's something crazy, like a hundred hours worth of content. You own it forever. High definition, unlimited replays, knock yourself out, but make sure you pre-order at starcastonfight.com. Or if you want to save some money and make your way to Baltimore, use promo code Eric and save yourself a bundle on some meet and greets. It's all going down at the power plant. That's right. That's the actual name of the venue, the power plant and inside of the power plant right there in Baltimore is a venue called Rams head live. You've probably seen some great concerts there. And we're going to be making wrestling history. We hope you'll join us. And I know Eric's going to be there with a live mic. This should be a lot of fun. You don't want to miss it. Starcast on fight or go to starcast.com. And don't forget there's two R's in Starcast. But without further ado, man, let's get this show on the road. Let's give a little uh, best of 83 weeks. From the 83 weeks episode, Vader in WCW. After this match, you guys would take a tour of Germany and we would see Vader wrestle Davy boy Smith a lot on that tour, but this tour is mostly notable because this is where the unfortunate incident between Arn and Sid took place. I don't think you were there, but what did you hear about the stabbing incident? I actually got a phone call late at night. Um, I was in Atlanta and I got a phone call from Doug Dillinger, I believe. Might have been Doug, might have been might have been Janie. I can't remember because it was literally I was asleep, and I got the phone call and started getting the the rundown. And I got the call early on when, you know, they weren't sure you know if Sid was gonna bleed out or not. You know, all they knew, you know, I got a phone call right after there was an incident. There was a stabbing. You know, Arn stabbed Sid vicious. I was like, what the fuck? You know, I'm just trying to shake the cobwebs out of my head at two or three o'clock in the morning, whenever it was that they called me. 
and trying to figure out what was going on over there because everybody was pretty upset and emotional. And I got like two or three phone calls over the course of about 20 minutes or 25 minutes. And then it's the picture started to become more and more clear that, you know, Sid was going to be okay, but he did get stabbed uh, with a pair of scissors by Arn. It was, it was freaky. It was just surreal to me that it would happen. You know, I mean, I've, you know, at that point, I had not been around, as we refer to them so often, the boys. I, I hate calling them the boys. I've always hated that for well, some reason. Why though? You know what's you know saying that I really fucking hate? What? Like, I really fucking hate it. Every time I hear it on TV, I want to throw the television out the goddamn window. I get so pissed off when I hear huh. it. Is the boys in the back. Oh, what the fu- fuck is that? It sounds like a... It's, it sounds like a group of teenage musicians, the boys in the back. Russo used to say that all the time. He used to drive me fucking crazy. I really you wish you wouldn't have told me that because I can't help myself now. I'm sorry. The boys in the back. I'm here. I'm out here because the boys in the back want me to tell you. And it's like, oh, my God. I mean, it, when, when I hear that, I'm thinking, what are they, a bunch of little 12-year-old guys running around fighting over fucking Twinkies? The boys in the back. These guys are men. They're athletes. They're physical specimens. They're dangerous. They're not boys in the back, especially if you're not one of them. Now, if you're one of them and you want to refer to your peers as the boys in the back, by all means, go forth and fucking prosper. Call them the boys in the back. But if you're a skinny little fucking dweeb, don't call them the boys in the back. If I was one of the boys in the back, when a guy like Russo or anybody else, an announcer or anybody referred to me as a boy in the back, I would have to come out and show them what a man in the in the locker room is all about. It just pisses me off. Anyway, I'm sorry. Whew. But yeah, it was astonishing to me at two or three o'clock in the morning after a series of two or three phone calls, the things would get so out of hand that somebody, <laughs> two guys would get in a fight and somebody would get stabbed. It, was, it blew my mind. So allegedly, um, Vader sees Sid doing what he described as the Frankenstein walk. And he notices that every time Sid's heart beats, uh, it pumps out like a nickel sized amount of blood out of Sid's stomach. So Vader puts his thumb in the hole to try to stop the bleeding a little bit until the ambulance comes and takes him away. What's your, what's your, uh, what's the protocol? I mean, what happens when there's a stabbing (laughs) chaos? I mean, that was kind of an all hands on deck, you know, first thing the next morning, Bill Shaw got involved in that one. He actually called me in. Um, he called everybody in on that one. Uh, even though I wasn't wrestling operations at the time, uh, that was a situation where, you know, we needed to get all of management on deck and try to figure out what to do, you know, and it was hard because none of us were there, you know, and it's, this is where situations like this or that was, I should say, um, become really, really tough because you can't take anybody's word for anything. You know, I knew it then. I know it even more now. Um, everybody's drinking, which is a bad situation to begin with. Everybody's been on the road. Everybody's overseas. There's stress. There's fatigue. There's alcohol. There's God knows what else, you know, involved. Um, well, it just is what it is. Um, 
and then you have something as serious as this, and you have to rely on eyewitnesses. Yeah, a lot of personalities involved back then. Right. A lot of, lot of, you know, they didn't call them clicks back then, but there were a lot of clicks involved back then. And I don't think you could listen to anybody and take anything that you had to, anything you heard from them, at face value in a situation like that. So that was a really, really tough spot. It was really tough. From the 83 Weeks episode, The Giant in WCW. Uh, Meltzer would report the following week. Hulk Hogan, during a horrible interview over the weekend, tried to strongly hint that Paul White was Andre the Giant's son, talking about how he remembered him at the Silver Dome watching the match. And there has even been talk of billing him as Andre the Giant Jr., you remember ever discussing Andre the Giant Jr. as a possible name? No, I think no. I don't think we were going to call him Andre the Giant Jr. I think it was, you know, we did obviously discuss, as I said moments ago, you know, connecting him to Andre the Giant and having him be Andre the Giant's son, illegitimate or otherwise. There was a lot of goofy ideas being bounced around at the time, but at no time was there any consideration from billing him for billing him as Andre the Giant Jr. I don't think Hulk would have won. You know, Hulk had a lot of respect, still does to this day. When you when you talk to him about Andre the Giant, he'll he'll start talking, and then within about three or four minutes, inevitably he'll start tearing up. Uh, I don't think he would have gone quite that far um, in in trying to name him Andre the Giant Jr. But we did we did definitely want to draw the connection between him and Andre. That, that that's a fact. So let's talk a little bit about Clash of the Champions because the next time we see uh, the Giant, he's at the Clash, and Hogan is back into the Dungeon of Doom, and this time the Giant rips off his cross off his neck. Of course, he has a cross gold chain that a lot of people remember Andre tore off in 1987. And then the giant starts choking him while shark Zodiac and Sullivan all attack Hogan. And, uh, eventually, uh, they drag Hogan out and pull Vader away and they do a stare down with the giant. This is, uh, looking and feeling very, very familiar. The whole tearing off of the cross. That was a big moment in the build for WrestleMania three. You guys are trying to leverage that with his gear and the necklace and all those little hints. Um, but here's a fun thing. I've always wanted to ask about this. I mean, you're right in the middle of introducing this character, but he's not a part of the first nitro was well, one of the ideas maybe supposed to be a Vader giant match on the first Nitro, and then all the Vader stuff happens, and that doesn't happen as a result. I don't. I don't think so. That doesn't ring a bell. You know, and I, I can't tell you why. You know, we're jumping around a little bit. I can't tell you why we didn't use Paul on Nitro, uh, other than you know there just wasn't an angle for him at that time, or there wasn't a story that was hot enough at that time. Would be my guess. That's all it is. But I don't think it had anything to do with. Look. We didn't, you know, we didn't plan far enough ahead with a lot of our underneath stories. And Paul would have been an underneath story at that point. Right. Um, we didn't plan three months out, four months out uh, with some of our, what I would call C and D stories. Because you do. And, you know, when, when you lay out, at least when I do, later on in, in my career, if I was going to write a wrestling show now, or a program that was going to last, you know, three or four months. Let, let me put it this way. When Spike Television 
came to TNA and said, okay, from now on, we want to see um, a minimum of a three-month story arc for all of your shows, all of your characters and all of your shows. And nobody in TNA knew how to do that. We sat down, we, meaning myself and uh, my partner at the time, Jason Hervey, was with a lot of, you know, Matt and a couple of the people that worked in creative and literally laid out an entire three-month story arc for A, B, C, and D stories. And then you had stories that were underneath that that were, you know, part of the show but didn't necessarily have an arc or a payoff, so to speak. Um, But even back in 95, because it was always a goal of mine to try to figure out the magic formula that would kind of give you a roadmap or a template that even though you knew you might have to take a left and go around a construction site or maybe you take a right and go, you know, visit a, a, a site along the way on your destination. For the most part, you had a pretty good general direction of where you were going and how you wanted to get there with at least your top two or three stories. So, you know, Paul was not in that top two or three stories back in 1995. And I think that was probably the reason it didn't have anything to do with Vader. So giant has not really worked a match. He's just doing run-ins and choke slamming guys like the American males and the nasty boys. It's apparent though, that he's a part of the dungeon of doom. And during the month of October, it becomes clear. Okay. He is Hogan's opponent for Halloween havoc for the world title. So he's really going to make his debut match, uh, as far as a traditional match, not just a run in or a backstage pre-tape skit or something like that for the world title, but somewhere along the way in this quest to dethrone Hulk Hogan, the dungeon of doom up the ante. And now we're going to have a sumo monster truck battle on top of the Joe Lewis arena. I'm sure you want to take credit for this one. I don't want to, but I have to, <laughs> I mean, there's nowhere else I can pin it on. Um, there was a reason behind it. <laughs> the, the reasoning behind it was that monster trucks was a really big, uh, business right. still is by the way, um, you know, owned by Feld entertainment probably produced, I don't know, a couple hundred events around the country. In fact, internationally to this day and generate a ton of money, little known fact, um, Mattel, uh, up until recently, because they no longer a part of monster trucks or monster jam as it were, or as it was, um, was selling 125,000 die cast monster trucks at Walmart a month. Oh my. So the logic was let's do a partnership with monster trucks so that we can take some of the WCW characters. And we started off with the Hulk Hogan truck and we started off with Paul's truck and let's create these trucks that are extension of our wrestling characters so that those trucks can then tour on the monster truck circuit and we can merchandise them. So as goofy as the fucking idea was from a wrestling point of view, and it was, I will admit that, the reasoning behind it is a little bit like Sturgis. It may not have been the smartest idea from a wrestling fan's point of view, but from a business point of view, at the very least, there was a logic behind it. And that was, that was it. And that was, that was the reason why we did it. 
So this is from Meltzer's write up, and we're going to cover Halloween Havoc in long form. Mark your calendars, boys and girls, October 29th. Um, but Meltzer says the match was actually a compilation of about a five minute live match and several hours worth of taping the previous night. They had two monster truck drivers doing the driving and Hogan and giant inside the truck faking like they were driving. If you notice all the, in the truck shots were identical and spliced in badly, which gave it a planet nine. Look the dungeon of doom truck looked cool. Even Hogan's truck looked like it was on steroids. After the match, Hogan and the giant argued and shoved and punched. And eventually the giant lost his balance on a ledge that was supposed to be overhanging Lake Michigan. Although there actually is no part of the roof of Kobo that overhangs the lake. It's actually a parking lot, totally surrounding the building. And then he plunged to his death or so we were led to believe angles like this are the reason pro wrestling in this country is in the condition it is in chat me up his first big show, his first big match, a world title bout. In fact, but before he gets a chance to get in the ring, he's dead. (laughs) Oh God. That was pretty bad. Wasn't it? Yes. It was very bad. It was bad. You know, it was bad. I can't. I'm trying to figure out a way to respond that would kind of put it in the best possible light. You know, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, well, it was Halloween Havoc, and it's a themed, you know, Halloween event, and he comes back to life, and, you know, uh, it's kind of cool. You know, it's kind of thematic. It's Halloween. People come back from the dead all the time in Halloween. I mean, we watch The Walking Dead. People suspend their b- disbelief uh, enough in that in order to make it one of the most watched shows in the world right now. Now, I'm trying to think of all these different ways I can try to at least frame it in a somewhat positive light, but I, I, I can't do it. I just can't. It was pretty, it was pretty bad. Of course, the match actually happens because the giant comes back to life, which is great news. Um, they go 16 <laughs> minutes and... <laughs> <laughs> which is great news. <laughs> you sounded so enthused. <laughs> uh, they go 16 minutes and 57 seconds. And they say that Hogan is going to keep the title because he's winning by DQ. Why is he winning by DQ? Well, Ron Reese comes down wrapped in toilet paper and they refer to him as the Yeti. And, uh, Meltzer would write, Yeti isn't supposed to be a mummy, but is supposed to be an abominable snowman from the Himalayas. So they got it half right. (laughs) Luger then put Hogan in the torture rack. Hogan and Savage were left laying as the Dungeon of Doom left the ring. It started as a great angle, but turned into something campy in the worst way when the guy wrapped up in toilet paper showed up and tried to have sex with Hulk Hogan. Giant left with the belt. Two stars. Oh my God. You know, I've never really been a fan of weed. I've never smoked weed. I mean, I have, don't don't get me wrong. I'm not lying about that. I have it, have smoked it, but it's just never been my kind of buzz. I'm, I'm just more of a beer buzz kind of guy, but I'm, I'm wishing back when this was being laid out and produced, I would have been sharing whatever weed those guys were smoking when they came up with this. Cause then it might've at least been entertaining and fun to watch. As it is, listening to you describe it and visualizing it and recalling it in my mind as it was happening, the Yeti thing was just so fucking 
horrible, horrible. And if anything drove me to, to wanting to introduce more reality into the wrestling product starting in 96, it might have been this. It might have been the Dungeon of Doom that actually helped me manifest the idea for NWO and more reality-based wrestling because this shit was horrible. It was horrible. Yeah. Meltzer would write. Oh, do you have to? Yeah. Do we have to hear what Meltzer had to say about this dreck for my Yiddish friends? Oh, go for it. Let's hear what Meltzer had to say. Yeti, who was a good three or four inches taller than our original giant, combined for a double bear hug on Hogan. At least that's what I hope it was because it looked more like a kinky sandwich. <laughs> this is fucking, it's amazing that when you really think about it, isn't it amazing that Paul white went on to have the hall of fame career that he's had when this is how he debuts. Like not a lot of guys would be able to sustain this. I guess it's part of the benefits of being seven foot tall. Well, it is. And, and this was early in Paul's career. And, and obviously Ron Reese didn't have a hall of fame career after this clusterfuck, but you know, and we'll, we'll talk about Paul white in his career. You know, I mean, probably as we get closer to the end of this, when we're talking about him leaving WCW and making the big choice to go to WWE because Vince McMahon promised him he was going to make him the next Andre, the giant, make him the next star. And, put him up on a pedestal and gave him a 10 year contract and all that kind of stuff. But you know, Paul's had a great career. Paul's had great longevity and I like Paul white. I have a lot of respect for Paul, but what's your favorite Paul white match, big show match. You know, I mean, he's been there and he certainly had longevity, but you know, I think he's, when you think of WWE and its top stars, I don't think Paul White comes to mind. All right, folks, I got to run a timeout right now. And of course, I'm talking about Blue Chew. And I'm sure that uh, Eric is wishing he had a little Blue Chew in him. I don't think he has anything in him. But once he gets some nutrients back in him, he gets to feeling better. You know, our man's going to be chomping on some Blue Chew. He's the leader of the Chew World Order. If you're out of the loop, here's what's going on. What's causing all this? Well, it's the world's first chewable, man. It has the same active ingredient as both Viagra and Cialis, but because it's a chewable, it can work faster and it can be taken on a full or an empty stomach. But better than that, it's a lot cheaper because the online physician consult is free. So you skip the in-person doctor visit that can be costly and maybe a little awkward. Instead, you just take a few minutes to get hooked up with a bluechew.com affiliated physician. And if you qualify, you're prescribed online very quickly. And you don't have to wait in line at the pharmacy. It gets shipped to you discreetly. And it's made right here in the USA. This is good stuff. Chew it and do it. You're going to love it. So are your partners. It is the hallmark of what we're doing here on 83 weeks. And now it's taken over the wrestling business. Find out what everybody else in wrestling already knows. Blue Chew is legit. Get your dick on the gas, man. And we've got a great deal for you guys. Visit bluechew.com and get your first order for free. When you use our promo code 83 weeks. You might actually have a heart on for 83 weeks. That's uh, 83 weeks at bluechew.com. You just pay $5 shipping at B-L-U-E-C-H-E-W.com, bluechew.com. The promo code is 83 weeks. And for $5 shipping, woo, it's going to be too sweet. 
from the 83 Weeks episode, Rowdy Roddy Piper in WCW. Let's talk about the next time we see Piper, and it's not a good segment. March 3rd on Nitro is when he does a skit to build his team for Uncensored. Meltzer was not kind about this. It's a 20 minute long angle where Piper is going to introduce his four man team for the uncensored three team cage match main event. And Piper is bringing out six men and he's asking the fans to sort of vote with a thumbs up, thumbs down routine. And Meltzer would say to say the idea was a catastrophe would be putting it mildly. The shock was that the fans picked up on how bad it was with Piper and I don't know, man. It's hard really to talk about this without dumping on it. Piper allegedly wanted to do a solid for some of his, his old friends. And one of those includes John Tenta, who he wanted to try to help get a deal with WCW again, since you guys had stopped using him and he's here and the the crowd's not really with it. And you've got some power plant guys. We also were right that Piper sort of had enough leeway and quote unquote, creative control to really hang himself a little bit with this, this show, this is not what they expected and it's not what anyone hoped for. What, what do you remember about him scouting his uncensored team and just what a disaster the segment became? It was a disaster. And let me make one thing really clear. <clears throat> Roddy Piper did not have creative control in his contract. Now, maybe what Dave was implying there is because he was a, you know, seasoned veteran and one of the, you know, top guys on the roster that he had a lot of influence. I, I can't get into Dave's head, but I do want to make it clear that Roddy Piper did not have creative control in his contract. <clears throat> that being said, yeah, I mean, it was a disaster and it's, you know, one of those things where you, you try something and it, it, and it, it, it didn't make sense on paper. Um, <clears throat> you know, I don't want to say negative about anybody at this point that was involved in this, but, um, sometimes it doesn't make sense on paper and it makes even less sense when you see it. And this was one of those cases. It just, there was no, it was a miss, no other way to say it. And I'll have to take responsibility for it. Cause I let it happen. Yeah. The, um, the boxer, uh, is going to be named Craig. The kickboxer is uh, named Layton. I mean, it's, it's an interesting team concept, I guess. Uh, the, the other of course is Tenta. Lots of people sort of look back at this segment and say, Hey, was that Bill Goldberg? Set the record straight. I, 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 I mean, I mean, I have to go back and look at the segment. Honestly, I can't, I couldn't tell you it was who Bill Goldberg, one of the guys that Piper was working out. One of the guys, no, 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 no. There was a guy. And I can't remember, and it might have been Craig It was his first name, but there was a guy, he was a real, um, he was a dark-haired guy, real broad shoulders, big, thick chest, probably about six foot tall. It was a guy that Piper traveled with. I mean, the guy, you know, he was with Piper all the time when Piper was in L.A. making the rounds, you know, with movie producers or television studios, whatever this guy was. He was kind of like Piper's Jimmy Hart, if you will, if that makes sense to you. Um And Roddy really, really liked him. And the guy was, you know, he worked out hard in uh, training wherever he was training in Portland. And Roddy really wanted to try to give him a shot. That, that part is true. 
Um, probably not one of Rowdy's better ideas or mine for letting it happen. Right. I think the guy you're talking about is Leighton Morse, uh, who was, I believe his real life friend. And um, there you go. That's right. You're right. You're right. It was Leighton. Either way, quiet, though. quiet guy, nice guy, you know, but just didn't have that. Why not fucking use wrestlers? Yeah. Where, <laughs> where, where the fuck were you when I needed you? Oh, I really, <laughs> I really appreciate just, uh, yeah. Uh, either way, the, the honesty sometimes is, uh, what gets me on this show where you're just like, uh, I don't know. Uh, March 10th, uh, Oakland is interviewing Roddy Piper and his three buddies and, uh, Flair's music hits and he comes out with Steve and Deborah McMichael and Arn Anderson and, um, Flair's cutting a promo saying, you know, we've offered you our services before, and now it looks like there's going to be a bit of a pivot instead of using these, these group of guys that Piper has assembled. It's a group gonna, of guys. <laughs> You're so kind. It's going to be <laughs> the horseman, uh, along with him. Chat me up. Why did you guys immediately realize after that segment? Um, this was a fucking bad idea. Yeah. Yep. And again, you know, sometimes things look great. It sounds great on paper, you know, history between, you know, Piper and, and, um, and flair, you know, we thought we could really bank on that. The same promo where Piper's out here and, and accepting the help from the horseman, he can't help, but just sort of go all over the place. He, he rips on Howard Stern. Uh, he's, he's mentioning Jim Ross by name, sort of burying him because JR on commentary has been calling WCW, the, the seniors tour and the over 40 promotion. And you know, that there aren't any wrestlers in the WWF who just have one hip. So he's going on and on and on, and he can't help, but talk about, you know, other WWF talent, whether it's gold dust or whoever, and he's name dropping all those guys. And and I do find age to be a funny thing. And I feel like we talk about this all the time, but it is sort of interesting that Jr. and obviously he's pushing the youth movement and he's doing what he's told and blah, blah, blah. But Piper here, I think is like 45 and Goldust and Kurt Angle right now are 49 big show and our truth are 46 Shelton Benjamin's 43. I don't think anybody thinks of those guys as being old, but here the WWF narrative was pushed so hard that even I sort of thought Piper was older than he really was. Hypocrisy is a wonderful thing in politics, you know, in wrestling, you know, it's, it's really easy to use whatever it is you feel like you need to use to gain an advantage, uh, over your opponent or over your competitor or whatever the case may be, but it's pure hypocrisy. Um, it was then and it is now, you know, it still is, um, by by to by the standards back then when WWE was trying so desperately to gain an upper hand and trying so hard and consistently to paint a picture that you know the WCW top talent that by the way was stomping a fucking mud hole in them just for the record but they were trying so desperately because they didn't have the creative tools to do it they didn't know how to overcome it creatively 
or tactically or strategically, at least not at that time. So the only thing that they could do was frame everybody as old and washed up and, and, and burned out and um, therefore not worthy of the audience's attention. Unfortunately, it didn't work. Um, well, fortunately for us and unfortunately for them, it wasn't until they adopted the, the same kind of formula that we were using that they were able to turn things around for themselves. But it had nothing to do with the age of our talent. Um, and it was unfortunate, you know, that Jim was putting in, put in the position he was in. I know he's just doing his job and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, if, if the same thing were to have, were to occur today, um, and people were to make fun of Jim Ross for whatever obvious things that are there, his age or whatever, um, you know, people would get hot about it. But back then it was like, oh, okay, well, we're WWF fans, so we'll buy into it. Let's get to uncensored. Team NWO, which is Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, the Macho Man, and Hulk Hogan, are going to beat Team Piper, which is Benoit, Roddy Piper, Jeff Jarrett, and Steve McMichael, and Team WCW, which is the Giant, Scott Steiner, and Lex Luger. So everything's changed here. Two weeks prior, we were told that these are Piper's friends and they're going to be here and have his back no matter what. They're not here. Uh, six days prior to this, we were told that this is, you know, the selling point of the pay-per-view is that we've got Flair and Piper back together again, side by side. After all these years, Flair's not here and there's no real explanation. Rick Steiner is injured, but there's not one WCW wrestler who's going to step up and take his spot. And as if that wasn't enough, Dennis Rodman's here. And they're going to take forever to have Hogan get in the ring just to get more photo ops and more time with those two guys together. And Meltzer would say, this is one of those booked on acid main events. And he booked, booked on acid. Is that what he said? Yeah. He runs down exactly why it wasn't that great and how some of it didn't make a lot of logic. And he gives it one star uncensored, man. It was just snake bit from the, from the word go. Was it not? It was, and part of it, I want to be careful here because I know how people react to shit like this. It wasn't by design. I'm not, I'm not trying to imply that we booked it to be horrible because if, if we did, we did a great job. <laughs> it, 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 it was horrible, but. The idea for Uncensored was more about the underlying tone of anarchy and NWO taking over and doing everything as different as, as we possibly could so that it didn't feel like another pay-per-view. Now, I, I missed the mark, and, and this one is on me. It's not, it's not on anybody else. Sold Out was really my, my concept. Uh, it was an added pay-per-view. The idea was to begin the NWO having not only, you know, eventually having Nitro, but also having their own pay-per-views so we could have our own wars and not have to try to fictionalize them. Um, at least have more of a believability war between NWO and WCW. But the idea, I mean, it's from the, from the very beginning when, when you watch the open, I think where was sold out? Was that the one that was in Des Moines or, oh, this is uncensored or uncensored. I'm sorry. I got the two mixed up. I'm so sorry. 
I thought we were talking about sold out. Oh, uncensored. Well, I'm not going to take as much of a hit on uncensored. I'll I'll bite the bullet on sold out, but uncensored was more of a cooperative fuck up. <laughs> oh my gosh! On the March 31st Nitro, Oakland is interviewing Ric Flair. Piper's music plays. Down he comes, and he begins by saying the rumor isn't true. And the Flair's girlfriend call his waterbed the Dead Sea. I don't, <laughs> I don't know why, but that's fun. Um, he's also sort of teasing some stories behind the scenes. That being Flair, when he says that he put Mark Lewin to sleep in '93 and the Nasty Boys to sleep in '93, and now he's put Hogan to sleep twice, and. Flair and Hogan are saying that, or Flair and Piper are saying they're going to stand by each other's side forever. They hug and leave the ring together. And Shivani, of course, calls it like the greatest moment in the history of wrestling or some shit. And the next week, they're right here in Huntsville, Alabama. And the fans are chanting for Piper when Flair's cutting a promo. And uh, he's talking about how Kevin Green is going to join them. And Piper's been receptive. And we're building towards a six man. On April 14th, Oakland interviews Flair, Kevin Green, and Roddy Piper, and they're challenging the NWO. And uh, it's a it's another wild, off-the-train-tracks promo from Roddy Piper. And we start to establish that this is going to happen, the NWO versus Flair, Piper, and Kevin Green. And we keep it going uh, the next week on April 21st and then the 28th. And we're building towards the eventual six-man and this six man has been highly debated because before Piper passed away, there was a story that was shared about what happened after the show. And we're going to get to that. But at this point, once the Hogan feud seems to be shifting now to an NWO feud, you've got a free Hogan up to go do stuff with Piper. Why, in your opinion, does it make sense to put him with Piper or put him with flair? but then also introduce a football player into the mix. It feels like that may complicate the situation when you've got obviously Ric Flair, one of the greatest of all time. Maybe Piper has lost a step or two Flair's up there in age. And now you put a football player in there. What's the creative behind it? What's the thought process? Yeah, there were two things there. You know, one is creative. The other is promotional. Um, look, you, you, you know, Rick, Rick has always liked to align himself with athletes, whether it's NFL athletes or, you know, I mean, he, he, he petitioned hard to bring Charles Barkley into WCW to do some things. And he, you know, he's always loved to align himself with athletes. That's just his, his nature. It's what he's done. It's his go-to as we've talked about before. We've all, we all have things that we've done in the past that have worked. So we tend to kind of go back and repeat the process and Rick was excited about Kevin Green. I was excited about Kevin Green. I was pretty good friends with Kevin and his wife. Kevin was a very – he was a Pro Bowl uh, linebacker. I mean, he was he was at the peak of his NFL game. Um, he was a big deal in Charlotte. There was natural connective tissue, um, promotionally speaking, between Flair and Kevin Green and, and Roddy Piper. Uh, so there was a lot of, again – reasons on paper why it made sense but you're absolutely right you know and i wasn't wasn't as sensitive to this issue then as i would be now 
but you know, Ric Flair can make anybody look good, but he's in a six man. Right. Ric Flair can't carry a six man. Right. You know, Roddy was very limited. We all knew that. We all saw that. Um, the audience knew that he wasn't, he was going to be able to go out and brawl. He could create emotion. He could do a lot of things better than anybody else that could do, you know, five star Dave Meltzer, you know, matches all day long. Oh no. Um, but he, but, but, you know, he couldn't, you know, perform at a real high level athletically. And that was an issue in a, in, in hindsight. Yeah, that was a mistake. Should have been more consideration for that. The April 28th nitro has a line. I'll never forget flares cutting a promo. And I guess the six man, we should remind everybody that they're trying to set up is hall Nash and six for the NWO, but he's mocking six. And he says, I've had more world titles than you've had pieces of ass in your lifetime. And, <laughs> And we're we're building. Oh God, I miss him. I just miss him. And I guarantee that came off the top of his head. Of course. (laughs) Absolutely. Nobody wrote that down and handed a sheet of paper. No doubt about it. Uh, as the air, as that show goes off the air, um, they're putting the beat down on, on flair, uh, flair tackles six and he's given hall and Nash low blows. Then he puts a figure four on six, but then hall and Nash just starts stomping him. And Piper's just standing there as this is all going on and Flair's screaming for help. And then as the show's going off the air, Piper's running down and whipping Nash with a belt. And I I guess we should just go down that road for a minute because these guys are going to have a personal issue as they build towards Slamboree. And I'm sure we'll talk about what happened afterwards in a moment. But it even makes the newsletter back then. And I didn't realize this until I did a little research this week that Piper wanted to do a live debate with Kevin Nash, but was talked out of it. Was there an issue as far as, you know, with maybe it's professional and sort of like him and Hogan, where they're just trying to outdo each other. Did you know of any sort of issue sort of bubbling under the surface with Kevin Nash and Roddy Piper before Slamboree? Yeah. I mean, it look, Scott and Kevin had a reputation before they got to WCW. It, It wasn't like they came into WCW as choir boys with stellar reputations behind the scenes. They, they came with a lot of baggage. Um, by this time when we were on a roll or nitro was on a roll and NWO was clearly on a roll, I think their tendency to make sure everybody backstage knew who they were, um, was probably exacerbated to a certain degree by their history and their, their, their reputations. But yeah, they were, they were difficult to be around and Piper resented it. There was a, there was a clear culture clash, um, between the two of them. And it, it escalated for a period of time. Okay. Let's run a timeout here. You know, part of the fun of talking about, you know, the good old days of WCW is we could sort of use the benefit of hindsight and rebook the territory. Well, now you can actually book the territory with the brand new WWE 2K20. If you go ahead and pick up the deluxe edition, you're going to get like 35% savings because you'll not only get the game, but you'll get a lot of the pre-order bonus pack stuff like bump in the night with the fiend Bray Wyatt and the SmackDown 20th anniversary edition also has digital content with Hulk Hogan and China and the $500 shirt version of the rock and the rock and sock connection version of mankind. Plus, you'll get the 2K20 Accelerator and the 2K20 My Player Kickstart. 
But here's what's cool about Showcase this year. It's all about the ladies. You get to relive the groundbreaking journey of the four horsewomen and the women's evolution. And it's got exclusive content from the cover superstar, Becky Lynch. And of course, Charlotte Flair, who we're fond of here on the show, Bailey and Sasha Banks. They'll all describe their journey to bring women's wrestling to the forefront of WWE in their own words with exclusive live action footage. And it tells their whole story from their start in NXT to headlining WrestleMania this year. So that's pretty cool. And for the first time ever, you can play as a both female or a male character in my career. And here's what's cool about this. They've got a ton of superstars fully voicing this featuring performances by more than 40 WWE and NXT superstars, the legends. They say this is the best my career experience yet. And you get to unlock original characters and legends and unique environments. You're going to have a lot of fun with that. 2K Towers, Roman's Reigns is what it's all about. And they actually call this Roman's Reign. You get to follow the big dog through his early days in the WWE. You get to go through the Shield, Brock Lesnar, John Cena, Undertaker, all his notable feuds. And he's going to pick up the championships along the way. You'll compete in 16 matches, live out all those key chapters. And most importantly, you've got brand new live action content as an introduction from the big dog himself and exclusive never before seen footage only available in this game. Now the WWE 2K roster is loaded. More than 180 of your favorite WWE superstars, legends, hall of famers, NXT superstars, and never before seen characters. You've just got to see to believe. Play as the WWE superstars of today, like Samoa Joe, Seth Rollins, Braun Strowman, or Brock Lesnar, and all the great legends from Andre the Giant to Roddy Piper, Sting, and more. And this is available right now for Xbox One, PlayStation 4, and PC. And the cool thing about the folks over at 2K is they're working hard to improve this game as time goes on. So you'll see new things, new updates as your gameplay improves, your environments will improve, new characters are rolled out. That's what's cool about this thing. It's connected. This is going to be a living, breathing thing for you. If you think it's fun right now, wait a little while. It's going to get even better. And those are good guys over there. Ramon and Bryce are friends of the show. They're listening to the show just like you are. Pick it up. I think you'll dig it. I know Dave Silva's son is loving his copy. Let's get back to more 83 weeks. All right, let's do a fun question here. Let's go to David Fuller. He wants to know if you can justify Virgil's contract. Uh, yeah. First of all, he wasn't that expensive. Number one, number two, he was a recognizable character. He had name value. He was rec- you know, he was recognized from all the time that he spent in WWE or WWF at the time. Uh, he was a talented guy. Um, he, he, he wasn't getting, you know, high seven figures or even mids or excuse me, six figures he was making, or even mid. Yeah. He's making 109,000 and 97, 112 and 98, 154 and 99. Okay. I mean, look, I, you know, I know people sitting at home that are, you know, working at FedEx or, or, you know, most, most normal jobs, non-entertainment type jobs here. Those numbers go, Holy cow, that's a ton of money. But keep in mind, you know, they're independent contractors, which means they're taxed at about 38% on that. They have to pay a lot of their own expenses on the road, uh, especially a guy like like Virgil did. Um, so that as much as $138,000 sounds like a lot of money, and it is, until you start deducting taxes and expenses, road expenses out of that. It's really, it really wasn't that much money for a guy who had spent as much time as, as Virgil had on WWF television. 
Uh, here's a fun question. This is from the off white Hispanic. That's a heck of a Twitter handle. Uh, do you think a future WCW sized competitor is possible in today's WWE dominated world? Absolutely not. It, 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 it will never happen again. It will happen about the, it will happen when somebody else becomes the first man on the moon. It's, it's just not possible anymore. The times have changed so much. Television has changed so much. And people have to realize WWE is now a fourth-generation family-owned company. It's been around. You know, I don't know the complete history of it. But I'm guessing since the 40s or, 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 or the 50s. Um, the WWE has been around as an entity and as a form of entertainment and professional wrestling for four generations to, to think that a startup is going to come along and compete with WWE is just sheer sub stupid fantasy. Um, it's never going to happen. That doesn't mean that someone can't come along and be successful because you don't have to be competitive in today's environment with the WWE in order to still be successful. But in terms of, you know, competing with them in any measurable way. Absolutely not. It'll ever happen. Here's a fun question. And, um, you know, we get various versions of this all the time. This is from Joey Ware. Eric, can you sell me this broom? You know, I should have a really good snappy comeback for that because it, I really should. Who was it in WWE a couple of weeks ago? They dug up an audition tape. Who's the Who's the new um, commentator on Monday Night Raw? Renee Young. Renee Young. Renee Young had an audition about two or three years ago, and she was asked to do something very similar. Yeah. And she she actually did a great job. And I guess you know if I had to do it all over again, I would probably come much more become much more animated. I'd grab the broom. I talk about the width of the broom, the durability of the bristles in this broom are unlike anything you can find anywhere for any price. This broom doesn't just sweep the floor. This broom owns the floor. I would have gotten much more animated and colorful and dramatic in my presentation. Um, and Renee did a great job, actually. Go back and look for that. It's pretty interesting. So I wasn't the only one that had to sell an inanimate object. From the 83 Weeks episode, Halloween Havoc, 1998. Let's talk a little bit about um, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. They're a big part of the show here. Obviously, two critical parts of the NWO. It was reported in the observer that Kevin Nash actually ran into Shane McMahon coming off an airplane and Shane mentioned that his dad was at another gate. So Nash goes over and has a brief conversation with Vince at the airport and allegedly, according to the rumor and innuendo jokes, something like, Hey, save me a spot 29 months from now. Did you ever hear that story about Nash running into Vince? And when you, if you did, did you care one way or another? I never did hear it. I, I would, it wouldn't surprise me knowing Kevin. Um, and I wouldn't blame him for doing it if he did. Um, uh, but I, I didn't hear it when it happened. I, I've heard it, you know, since then, obviously, but, uh, I didn't hear about it then. No, I do want to mention that there was an incident, I believe on October 12th, this is a nitro where Scott Hall, who a lot of people were speculating 
even people who are his friend that he's impossible to deal with because he's got these substance issues and perhaps he should be sent home, but maybe in a weird way, because the gimmick is he's getting loaded that it's the lines are blurred and maybe you're okay with him. Obviously you're not endorsing him being in no condition to perform, but we've sort of opened Pandora's box a little bit with what we're showing on screen. He has three rental car crashes and lots of people are wondering like, why the fuck is he even still here? But allegedly on the 12th, he gets a little mouthy with buff Bagwell running down what buff did sort of shitting on his performance. And it was reported in the observer that buff slapped him twice. Although quote wrestlers describe them as working slaps, which was the extent of the altercation, which all witnesses said was provoked by hall. Do you remember the situation with Buff and Hall here and anything about this whole working slap situation? No, I've never heard that until, until this moment. And I'm not saying it didn't happen, obviously, but I hadn't heard about it. I don't know where it happened or if it happened at a night show and I wasn't near it uh, or if it happened at a house show or I'm, I, mean, I don't know. But I, I had not heard that until just now. Can you speak to, you know, why, why Hall wasn't sent home? I mean, allegedly he's showing up in condition less than ideal and even crashes through rental cars. Clearly he's going through some stuff. Do you consider sending him home or are you hesitant because you've made it an angle? No, we were, it was a tough spot for all of us. It was a tough spot for Scott, obviously. Um, it was a tough spot for us and you know, we've, you and I have talked about this before you know, that working his personal issue into a storyline is something that I, I do regret. People always ask me, well, you know, what's the one thing you really regret? My answer is almost always the same. I don't regret anything. I'm grateful for everything, the way it happened. I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you right now if if I wouldn't have had the experience that I had. And it's, I, I just don't regret things in the past. I don't look at life that way. I, I've, I've made a lot of mistakes. I've learned from them or I've tried to. And you move on. There's not a lot of room in my life for regret. I do regret, however, um, not doing more to try to get Scott more help, although I don't think it really would have mattered at that time, but it, it was my responsibility nonetheless. I do really regret um, using his issue, a personal issue, um, in storylines. And, and trying to blur the lines because, you know, everybody knew about Scott's issues. Kind of like we talked about with Ric Flair and I, everybody knew that we had a lot of personal issues or business issues that became personal. Um, and it was easy to use that uh, to enhance a storyline. It, 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 taking reality and fictionalizing it just a little bit to make it work inside of a wrestling ring was a formula that had worked for me from time to time. But it was poor judgment on my part to try to do that here. Um, there's just no other way to say it. No, well, I, I mean, I appreciate your candor. Um, let's talk about Halloween Havoc. Let's just get to it. I guess I should mention on the Go Home episode of Nitro on our way to Halloween Havoc, this is one of the first times that we see Horace Hogan show up. Uh, he is introduced here, of course, as the nephew of Hulk Hogan, telling him how much he loves him. And then he, of course, uh, gets attacked and, uh, the NWO <laughs> beats him up. Warrior comes in for the save giant choke slams him. Hulk spray paints him. Uh, we're out of here. Uh, nitro does a 4.36 that night. 
Raw does a 5.01. So after that winning streak coming out of Fall Brawl, as we're headed towards arguably the second biggest pay-per-view of the year for WCW, they're not in a winning position. But what I wanted to ask about was Horace Hogan. How did this come to be? Um, well, he, you know, he legitimately was Hulk's nephew and he was working in Florida. I think he had worked a little bit in ECW. I may be mistaken about that. Get my, if my recollection is right, he had worked around a little bit and, you know, Hulk wanted to give him a shot. He's family. You know, I've said this before. Hulk is loyal to a fault and sometimes it gets in the way. And in this case, it got in the way. Horace really wasn't. He shouldn't. Look, it's a little bit like we did with David Flair. It was the same mistake we made with David, right? It's one thing to give somebody a shot in an opportunity. It's another thing to thrust them right in the middle of some of the hottest stuff that you've got going on. That's that, that almost ensures someone's failure. And it was really unfair to Horace in retrospect, it's easy to have 2020 hindsight, but it would have been a lot more fair to Horace to, to let him work on his own and build up his own audience and build up his own character, um, away from Hulk for a period of time and then try to create an angle between him and Hulk using the family thing, but to thrust him right into it in this cluster, um, pretty much ensured that, you know, he's going to go down as an, as an asterisk, in the history of wrestling. All right, folks, we got to run another timeout now. And this one is a fun one. We're talking about my friends at Steven Singer Jewelers. And I love talking about our friend Steven Singer. And I'll tell you, Steven Singer is like me and you, a big wrestling fan. He's in Philadelphia, so he's probably a, a hardcore fan. And he's just like me and you. He's listening to this show every single week. He loves hearing Eric's perspective on the wrestling business and the competition. Well, they don't like him as much as I do. They hate the guy. He just makes the experience of buying a diamond better and better because he makes it fun. And he's the very first, as far as I know, jeweler in the world to offer every customer the perfect price. I'm serious. Have you ever wondered if you're getting the best price? I mean, you know, they're going to try to educate you on color, cut and clarity and all this, but are you comfortable negotiating? I mean, I think a lot of people get uncomfortable negotiating. This is an important purchase that you're trying to make in your life. And you don't want to leave that to chance. Here's what you do. Cut out all the nonsense and go to Steven Singer Jewelers and you're guaranteed to get the perfect price. You'll never pay more than the guy sitting next to you. And there's a little pro tip for you. Most jewelers just mark their stuff way up only to mark it down and make you feel like you're getting a deal. The next guy who comes in behind you, man, he could be paying less. Don't leave this to chance. This is never the case at Steven Singer because at Steven Singer Jewelers, you're guaranteed to get the perfect price all day, every day, 365. And what does that mean? I'm not about to give you a promo code. I'm not about to tell you there's some big stupid sale. You're getting a good deal every time. You're getting the best price every time. You're getting the perfect price every time. And that's why we trust Steven Singer. He makes the experience of buying a diamond so easy. So check him out if you're in Philadelphia. It's Steven Singer Jewelers at the other corner of 8th and Walnut in Philly. Or online, just go to IHateStevenSinger.com. That's IHateStevenSinger.com. One more time, IHateStevenSinger.com. Steven Singer Jewelers, one place, one price. From the 83 Weeks episode on Eric Bischoff's first year in the WWE. Well, there's uh, 
a throwaway segment that people still talk about to this day. And it's the September 9th raw where you're announcing hot lesbian action, which people will start to abbreviate as HLA. And the two women who come out are actually a couple of independent workers from UPW in California, which is the same promotion that uh, saw John Cena and Samoa Joe and some other guys get their start. And you make them talk about how badly they want to touch each other. And they strip down and Jerry Lawler's here with binoculars and he's going insane in the booth and they kiss. And then you suddenly stop them and say, it's been long enough. And three minute warning, beat them up bad to the point that Rosie, uh, lays them in a 69 position. So Jamal can crush them with a big splash. I got to hear whatever you can tell us about HLA and three minute warning destroying them. Yeah. You know, I was, I have to say this was the first time I was a little bit uncomfortable with, with my character and what I was doing. It, It didn't slow me down. I didn't second guess it. I didn't, I, I wasn't tempted to go question anybody about it. It was my job. I was being asked to do it and I was going to do it to the best of my ability, like I said earlier, but it to me was crossing a line, even though they had done so many other things prior to my getting there that was much more salacious and provocative than that. Um, that just, and it wasn't so much, it wasn't so much the HLA stuff, you know, it wasn't, you know, two girls kissing really didn't, wasn't that. But I think them getting physically obliterated as badly as they did, I think that's the part that actually made me a little bit more uncomfortable than, you know, encouraging two girls to make out, you know, in the middle of the ring. It, it, it didn't feel right to me in, in a weird kind of way. Well, I don't think it's that weird. I mean, just saying it out loud is like, man, it's hard to believe they really did this. But I mean, I remember and. It's just, uh, it's a weird time in the business, man, but it was, it was, you know, it was still kind of a, a hangover effect, if you will, from the attitude era, they were still, you know, they hadn't gone, obviously they hadn't gone PG yet. You know, they were toning it down a little bit. By the time I got there, they started toning things down just a little bit. They weren't going as crazy. Well, they didn't have to, cause they didn't have any competition. So they weren't digging as deep and doing as many things that were so over the top and ridiculous to get attention. So they would they were already kind of winding down, but there was still there was still a little bit of that, you know, attitude era hangover, you know, creatively, where every once in a while they would do something crazy like this. And I think it was again, you know, somebody's idea of a, uh, something that would get a lot of attention and, you know, teenage boys would get off on it or college kids or whatever, and it was what it was. Well, the hits keep on coming. That happened on the ninth and three days later, you're on SmackDown. Uh, but we don't know you're there. Rico comes down to the ring for the ceremony, uh, for a wedding between Billy and Chuck. And after a commercial, Steph comes out and Rico cuts a promo about what a momentous night this is for WWE television, where two men would boldly go where no man had gone before. And Billy and Chuck come out as a live band is playing the song. It's raining men. And, uh, yeah, I think we all know that the justice of the piece here is actually you in a shit ton of makeup. And you've gone on record as saying that this is 
probably the most fun you had in the business. When did you hear about the idea? Take us back to that day and, and just tell us the story of how this all came together and, and what it required of you. I think it was Bruce Pritchard that came to me probably a month before this and said, here, here's, here's what we're going to do. And by the way, you need to get on a flight. You need to go out to LA. We're sending you out to a makeup studio. Um, it was a studio and I don't remember the name of the studio at the t- uh, now, but at the time it was probably one of the top makeup and, and, um, Oh, there's a word for mass. I can't remember what the name of it is right now, but they, they would do they, the most extensive makeup artist in Hollywood. If there was a movie and they had to make, you know, an alien, this is, this was like the go-to company prosthetics. This was the go-to company that would make prosthetics and masks and makeup and all that kind of stuff. And I flew out, uh, it was a, a good month and a half or month in advance of this. So whoever planned this, whoever was involved in this, this was something that had been planned up well, well in advance. And they flew me out to get fitted for this mask that you saw me in. And I really wasn't in that much makeup, to be honest. It was really just the mask. Um, and they flew me out and I got a fit of it. And that took almost an entire day. I, I remember sitting there for the better part of the day. And I walked into the studio where they make all this stuff. And it was like walking through you know, a museum of all of the coolest, you know, stuff from movies that we all recall, you know, whether it was Terminator, whatever your, your favorite movie was where, you know, you had actors wearing prosthetics. It was just amazing. The stuff that I saw there. And like I said, they spent the better part of the day, you know, fitting me for this mess. You know, they had to take a plastic or a plaster cast of my face and then they, they built it from that. And, I was told to get to the, the event took place in Minneapolis and I was told to, I got, obviously I got to Minneapolis the night before and I was told that usually when I would get to the building, like by 11 AM or noon, uh, that was a talent call time, depending on what part of the country you were in. And they said, you know, would you please get there by nine? Because it's going to take the better part of the day to get this mask applied. So they had flown the makeup artists in from this company in California. I got to the building in Minneapolis uh, right on time. It was early in the morning. Nobody else was there, you know, other than the production crew who came in the night before, you know, setting up the, the grids and the lighting and bringing all the gear and setting up the staging and all that. They were all there. But I got into the building. I went back into a room that they had set aside that was off limits. Nobody could come in or out of there. And they proceeded to put this makeup on me or this mask. And it took, God, it took a good four hours to get this mask on and, and get it right. And I got out of that mask. I looked in the mirror and I went, holy crap, this is amazing. And I hadn't really thought about how I was going to perform. You know, I didn't really think about what my character was going to be because I didn't know what the mask was going to look like. Once I saw the mask, I went, okay, now I, now I know what I have to do. And, and I don't want to sound like a, a method actor or, or an actor, period, because I'm not. But what I, you know, after seeing myself in the mirror, I thought, okay, I've got a, I've, I look so much like, you know, an 80 year old guy that I've got to, I've got to act like one. I can't walk out there. Like, you know, I normally would walk out there. I've got to walk and talk and believe I'm an 80 year old man. So I, I thought about how to do that. And 
I thought about Jim Barnett and the way he talked because I just, I don't know, looking at myself in the mirror, it just felt like the appropriate thing to do. So I knew I wanted to, I wanted to steal from Jim Barnett a little bit. And not only his voice, which was very distinctive, and everybody probably knew who that who that came from, but you know the way Jim carried himself because he was one of the you know only guys I knew that was that much older than me, right? So I, I pulled a lot of that character from Jim Barnett, and I also pulled part of it from my my father. You know, my father was, um, he, long story short, he was born very premature back in the 1930s. He only weighed like three and a half pounds when he was born, and I had to keep him warm, you know. In a, in a dresser drawer with a heat lamp in order for him to survive. And because he was born so prematurely, a hole in the spine, uh, he was born with that. And he didn't really know that until he was in his 20s. But this, and it was right at the base of his neck is where this hole was. And it was filling up with cerebral fluid. And it got so bad, his headaches got so bad and spasms and things like that, that he had to have brain surgery in order to fix that. Well, as a result of that brain surgery, when my dad woke up, he was um, – almost completely paralyzed in one arm and hand and partially in another as just a result of the surgery. And I remember how my dad carried himself a little bit, the way, you know, his arms kind of shook a little bit and his hands were kind of curled up. So I thought, okay, I'm going to take a little bit from my dad and I'm going to take a little bit from Jim Barnett. And I'm going to mix them together and I'm going to see how this plays. And I walked around backstage trying to become that character, a little bit of Jim Barnett, a little bit of my dad. And it worked, you know, and I felt really comfortable with me because there were two people that I had spent, obviously in my dad's case, spent a lot of time around. And I just felt like I had that down and, you know, affecting my voice like Jim Barnett's was really easy to do. So I, I started playing with it, you know, and people started showing up. Now it's about 1230, one o'clock, right? Now the backstage area is filling up with people. I wanted to fuck with as many people as I could in character sure. to see if they could tell it was me or not. And the makeup was so good. And I did my part well enough that nobody knew who I was. I was going up to all kinds of, you know, Eddie was the first one. There were other people I'd walk to. I'd just start fucking with them. You know, yeah, you got any whiskey? <laughs> kind of thirsty. You know, and people just go, well, what the fuck is that? You know, who is this old guy walking around backstage looking for whiskey? It was just so much fun, but I was so confident because I approached, you know, probably half a dozen or more people doing the same type of thing and none of them knew it was me. So I thought, okay, I got this, this is going to work great. So by the time we got out, you know, to the ring, I had so much confidence that it was ridiculous. I knew it was going to be great. The only people that knew were the people that were involved in getting me set up to be that character. They kept it a pretty good secret. And the cool part of this kind of, I know I've said that, I think I talked about this last week when I, when I walked out, and I got in the ring for the very first time in WWE. And we talked about how, and again, this, I don't want to sound like an actor, but as a performer in the wrestling business, you know when you have the audience. There's a magic kind of feeling that you get 
most of the time what you get is I call it a Pavlovian or Pavlov's dog response. The audience knows they're part of the show. They know they're supposed to boo. They know they're supposed to cheer. Or at least they did back then. Now it's all fucked up. But, you know, it was you get the reaction that you would expect you're going to get based on the role that you're playing on any given show. But every once in a while, you get a reaction that is so real and so genuine because people are literally shocked and they don't know how to react. And this was one of those times. When I started peeling that mask off, I'm looking out into the crowd and I'm, I'm, I could feel the air coming out of the room. It just, it's hard to explain it, but the delayed reaction and just the looks on people's faces was priceless. I'll never forget it. You know, and it only lasts, you know, a second or, you know, second and a half, you know, do you really stand there and feel that? Because by the time I got the mask off, that's when the shit started going down inside of the ring, right? Stephanie did a great job reacting and everybody did their jobs. And it was a really, really well done segment by everybody involved, by everybody involved, from the people that wrote it to the people that, you know, decided to send me to L.A. to get the makeup done, the people that built the big set that went inside of the ring, whoever laid that schmaz out because it was a very complicated there's a lot of people in the ring there's a lot of shit happening stephanie getting smashed by you know three minute warning there's all kinds of shit going on in there it could have gone bad real easily but it was so well laid out and well orchestrated that it came off just brilliantly but it to this day as you can probably tell i get excited talking about it it was the most fun thing i've ever done in the ring I'm glad you mentioned that, uh, Stephanie got laid out because I think that sort of gets lost. Um, people just talk about the big reveal, but, uh, one by one, these guys are agreeing that yes, they're going to take each other. And then they realize, Hey, wait a minute. This is supposed to be a publicity stunt. We're not gay. And Rico is outraged saying, you know, I knew you guys would back out at the last second and you cut him off and say that, you know, commitment is a special thing, whether it lasts. 50 years, 16 months or three minutes. And then here comes three minute warning. And not only do Chuck, Billy, uh, and Rico get some, uh, some come up and Stephanie does too. And as soon as, uh, they're about to hit her with the big splash, the entire locker room empties and clears the ring and you Rosie and Jamal escape through the crowd. And it got a ton of media coverage. Uh, it was talked about on Howard Stern and a lot of newspapers and even the today show. And a a lot of folks were not really happy with this because of, uh, well, you know, chat me up. What was your feedback and your impression from all of the mainstream attention this angle got? You know, I, 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 I paid no attention to it. Look, it's wrestling. I'm the guy that I wrote the book controversy creates cash. And this was obviously before I wrote the book, but you know, it's, I, even to this day, probably more so today than ever before, because you know, everybody's a social justice warrior now, you know, the, the, the people's threshold for controversial approaches to entertainment or everybody's so super sensitive. Now it's ridiculous. Um, but even back then, before it got as bad as it is today, it's like, it's wrestling, 
You know, when you when you watch television, when you go to a movie, you see shit worse than this all the time. Why is it that wrestling has to be treated so much differently than any other form of entertainment? So when I, you know, I heard everybody up in arms and, you know, obviously it was because of the, you know, the the integration of the gay storyline within this and how that was treated. But it just if to me, it went in one ear and out the other. It was a great segment. It did a great job at entertaining the audience. It didn't demean anybody. Uh, it wasn't intended to do that. And if anybody was offended by it, it's because they wanted to be offended by it. Um, and I just, I didn't, I didn't give a fuck. How's that? On the September 16th Raw, you appear in mid-ring where the arena is dark and there's a spotlight just on you. And you're saying that your SmackDown appearance was a one-time thing. You can only provide SmackDown so many riveting moments every so often because you're back on raw just for all the people. And of course people are booing, but you're saying you didn't come back alone. You bring in Rico and he steps out of the shadows and says, hi there. And you reveal that he's going to debut on raw later that same evening against Ric Flair. And then you announce the signing of RVD and triple H to unspecified title matches and, uh, promise that you're going to get the people, what they want in the show, uh, later in, in the same show, you're back in the ring and you're calling the protesters from earlier in the show down to the ring. And the woman in charge couldn't keep a straight face. And she talked about all the horrible things you had done lately, including HLA. And of course this goes exactly the way the WWE wants the crowd pops big for that and starts a HLA chant. And you grabbed the mic and said, you finally figured it out. You're surrounded by a horde of lesbians. And you're about to make the three minutes comment. When one of the women tears her wig off and reveals that it's Stephanie, she kicks you in the nuts. And then Billy and Chuck hit the ring and give you the doomsday device. Of course that brings in three minute warning and there's a brawl. So you guys have a pretty cool angle going here with Chuck and Billy and Stephanie and three minute warning in yourself. How are you feeling about this? A couple of weeks in. I loved it. I loved it. I mean, the crowd was into it. It was different. Uh, it didn't have the same formula that I was, I had experienced early on as we talked about a few minutes ago. It felt like it was pushing the envelope a little bit or a lot. And I like that. You know, I mean, it's, that's the kind of stuff I love being a part of. Well, I know you love being a part of Unforgiven. Uh, you're, you're here and, uh, you say that, uh, you've got two, two women with you and they're referred to on camera as the lesbians. And you said tonight <laughs> LA stands for lesbian action. And you introduce the girls as peaches and cream and demand they start making out. And just when they're about to kiss, you tell them to stop, call out Stephanie, and then announce that it's going to be a three-way. And the girls take their tops off and start groping Stephanie. And the entire crowd is chanting HLA until you tell them to stop and then send the lesbians backstage and say, you have a better idea. You want to humiliate Stephanie by having her kiss the ugliest, most disgusting lesbian ever. And you call out, I believe her name is Hildegard, who's obviously Rikishi in disguise. And Stephanie starts making out with him, which you find incredibly appalling. And then Rikishi reveals himself and gives you a super kick and a stink face, man. This is like out of a movie. I can't believe this happened. Uh, <laughs> I mean, 
this reads make believe, but chat me up. You were there. What do you remember about, uh, lesbian action and them groping Stephanie and Rikishi in disguise and then a stink face. Yeah. I loved all of it. You know, it, it went, as it was being laid out to me, I loved all of it. I was laughing all the way through it. I could see it playing. You know, here's, here's how I am a little bit. Even today, when someone lays something out to me on paper creatively, if, 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 the minute I read it, I can visualize it in my head. 99 times out of 100, it's a good idea. You know, whether it's a script or, you know, an outline for a television show or whatever it is, if it's anything that's creative and it's laid out on paper, and if I can read it and I immediately start seeing the images in my head, or in some cases it's so clear or so well written that I can actually see it like it's, it's a movie. <laughs> and I, that's the way this was laid out to me as it was there explaining it to me. Okay, this is going to happen and this is going to happen. And here's what we're going to do. And then Rikishi's now I'm, I'm like, Oh, this is great. This is great. Oh, this is going to be awesome. You know, this is going to be awesome until we got to the sink face. And I'm thinking, Oh fuck. <laughs> <laughs> do I really have to do that? And then I reminded myself, and, and, and I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, bullshit you. I mean, there was a part of me that went, uh, is this just their way of, you know, rubbing it in one more time that they won the war? And, sure. You know, let's, let's, you know, demean Eric Bischoff if we can, you know, I'm not going to lie. That thought did cross my mind and, but only for a minute because I, I went, wait a minute. Stephanie McMahon is taking a stink face. I mean, Vince McMahon pissed himself in the middle of the ring. You know, look at all of the things. Like, <laughs> you know, eventually I would go on to be making out with Linda McMahon. I mean, Vince put people in all kinds of really fucked up situations, including his own family. And I remember Hulk Hogan told me once, and this is before I went to work for Vince or WWE. Hulk Hogan told me once the thing about Vince is he'll never ask anybody to do anything that he wouldn't do himself. And that's that, you know, as soon as I started feeling a little, you know, disappointed that I was going to have to take it and, you know, started to let my, myself, you know, think for a moment, Oh my God, would my character allow that to happen? Which is a stupid way to think by the way, as a character, um, just because you don't like something doesn't mean, it doesn't work for your character. And I, just as I started to think about that, I remembered what Hulk told me about Vince. And I'm thinking to myself, he's right. You know, he asked his daughter to do some pretty screwy shit. Look what he's put his son through. Look what he's put himself through, you know, in order to get a story or an angle over. Who am I to say, eh, who am I to not feel, you know, like I should do the best I can with the scene? And, that, and it only lasted for a split second for me, you know, doubting whether I really wanted to go through it or not. And then once I, like I said, I had a little talk with myself inside my head. It was like, okay, fuck, let's do it. Let's make the most of it. And that's how I approached it. And, it, you know, looking back on it, it was a great scene. It worked. On the October 31st SmackDown, it's Halloween, of course, and your costume is a Vince McMahon costume. And you're having an argument with Stephanie. And then afterwards you plan a long kiss on her who fights it at first, but then shows shines shows signs that she's enjoying the kiss. Uh, this is becoming a, a theme here. Is it not you making out with Stephanie? 
Well, you know, if two times is a pattern, then yeah, it was a hell of a pattern. And it, it to this day, you know, because again, you know, no, WWE, you know, nobody talks about whose idea it was. Someday, you know, as much time as I spent around Bruce Pritchard, I've never asked them that, which is really weird. Because I'd still like to know whose idea was that. I'm pretty sure it was Vince's idea, but I think there was other people involved, obviously. And I'd, I'd just like to know what they were thinking. Like, what was the re- – because it came from out of the blue. It wasn't planned. It was it was spontaneous combustion that I think the idea developed that afternoon when we got to TV. And I I thought it was a great idea. Again, it was pushing the envelope. It was doing something that had a lot of potential. It was a foundation for what could have been a great storyline as opposed to the tit-for-tat kind of, no pun intended, sorry, Steph, as opposed to the back-and-forth stuff that we were kind of doing, you know, Raw's better than SmackDown, SmackDown's better than Raw, I'm going to steal your talent, no, I'm going to steal your talent. That kind of shit didn't really get over with the audience because it wasn't big enough, it wasn't controversial enough, it wasn't hot enough, it wasn't divisive enough. You know, it didn't feel believable enough. It was just going through the motions of trying to create two separate brands. But this was a beat that I thought when they laid it out to me, I thought, whoa, this could, this could work. Depending on where they go with it, this could be really the beginning of something great. And I was really excited. It was awkward. I'm not going to lie. It was awkward, you know, making out with Stephanie with her dad standing right there. And keep in mind, I was still relatively new on the scene. I didn't have a close relationship with Vince. We never, you know, sat down, had beers and slapped each other in the back and laughed about all the shit that, you know, we did back and forth. We didn't have that kind of relationship. It was a very super professional but distant type of relationship. Uh, Friendly but not friends, if you will. So, you know, having him standing there directing the scene while I'm making out with his daughter, and I knew she didn't want to do it. You know, she was like me with Rikishi. Really? (laughs) Do I have to do this? I'm sure she was feeling that. But, you know, she was a pro, and, and as weird as it was, again, as a character, you know, you're doing it. And I think that was a live segment, actually. And it wasn't a pre tape, it was live. And, as you as I'm doing it, I can hear the crowd reacting, even though I was, you know, in a remote part of the arena. I could hear the reaction from the crowd. I thought, holy shit, this is gonna be great. And then it just got dropped. It was like boom, gone. Evaporated into thin air, never to be spoken of again. Which is was more weird for me than having Vince standing there directing and make, you know, having me make out with his daughter. No, I want you to really get in there. Stick your tongue down her throat. You know I mean? It was really, you know, his direction was very animated <laughs> to say the least, but we did it. And then boom, it's gone. So what the fuck? When you find out that you're going to be kissing Stephanie McMahon, is that something just, you feel like you need to give a heads up at home. Just, uh, Hey, Mrs. B just so you know, I'm making out with the chick on TV tonight. No, I mean, again, actors, people do it on TV all the time. I just, no, my wife was, (laughs) she understood, you know, what and why I was doing. And, you know, not like she thought, Oh my God, he's falling in love with Stephanie McMahon. (laughs) You know, I, I think I didn't think at all about Lori. Um, and maybe I should have, but I didn't. (laughs) 
Uh, I, did, you know, I did, you know, I thought, wow, well, my kids are going to see this. It's going to be a little weird for them seeing their dad make out with somebody else. But it wasn't the first time. You know, I did the same thing with Liz, uh, Miss Elizabeth and in, in WCW. And it's, it, they were used to it. You know, it, it, they knew what it was and why it was. All right, guys, let's run another time out here. And this time we're going to tell you all about our friends at Field of Greens. Now, I got a question for you. Have you ever wondered why so many Americans are sick? unhealthy and overweight well between the food supply and a sedentary lifestyle americans are in the worst shape ever and that's why the team of on-staff physicians at brickhouse nutrition created field of greens field of greens is an easy way for you to add fruits and vegetables to your daily routine without spending hours in the produce section hiring some home shelf or taking some cheap supplements instead field of greens is made with real usda organic fruits and vegetables It's also going to help you boost your immunity by using antioxidants, and it's going to assist in digestive health with both prebiotics and probiotics. It's like having a doctor and a nutritionist in your kitchen. One scoop delivers a full serving of fruits and vegetables. Just drop it in a cup of water, stir it up, and boom, you're done. It's also great for smoothies, which is the way my wife has been enjoying ours. The bottom line, this is real food, not extracts. You will look and feel better. Go to BrickHouse83Weeks.com and you'll get 15% off your first order just for trying it out when you use the promo code 83Weeks. One more time, that's BrickHouse83Weeks.com and the promo code is 83Weeks. That's BrickHouse83Weeks.com and the promo code is 83Weeks. From the 83Weeks episode, Eric's WWE Debut. I do want to ask, you wrote in your book that JR was, was pretty vague. He said things like, we don't really know if it'll work. It's a short-term deal. Come in. We'll try it. If it works great. If not, Hey, part friends. So he's not really committing to anything. And as you said, probably kayfabe him a little, do you think your answer would have been different? I know you had a whole lot of folks coming. I know you'd been you know, really celebrating the holiday. I know it's your favorite holiday and it's a, it's a tent pole event, as you would say, I understand. But if you knew it was the invasion, would that have changed anything in your answer? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, look, look, the reason I turned them down is because nothing Jim said to me on the phone. And again, I want to make this really clear because people tend to hear things excuse me, the way they want to hear them sometimes. So I'm going to be really clear and redundant. I don't blame Jim Ross for not telling me what their idea was at all. I would probably not have done it. I I would have probably taken the same approach if I were in Jim's shoes at that time, because Jim had no idea what I was going to do with that information. You know, he, he, he just didn't. So I, I get that, but had to, to your point, had Jim said, with, and Jim is quite the salesman. You know that. You sure. know, Jim wants to be a salesman. He can sell his ass off. But if Jim would have had just a little bit of enthusiasm in his voice, just a little bit. I didn't need a lot. I don't need a lot of love, just a little. And if he would have even hinted that there was this plan for an invasion angle, I would have fucking hitchhiked <laughs> to get to, to, to TV. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I would have felt like, okay, now this can work. This is a big deal. This is not just, oh, let's have Eric showing up pretending he's an ice cream man in the audience and let's see if that works. 
You know, this was that would have been a big deal. And it would have been one that I could have pulled off very well, just given the history and my relationship and all that. It's not that, you know, I'm the greatest performer in the world, but it's it was natural, kind of like me and Steve Austin. You know what I mean? It's organic. People will get with it. So, yeah, I would have I would have had to apologize to a bunch of people and they would have all understood and they would have had a great time anyway. But, yeah, I would have like I said, I would have hitchhiked to TV if I would have had to to make it by Monday. It's a shame that didn't happen because the whole thing could have looked a lot different. But I understand, you know, the, the position that Jim was in where he's probably not a big Bischoff fan. Well, certainly wasn't. But then on top of that, he doesn't want to let this out. And you once upon a time were the fucking devil for them. So I get it. Um, I do want to bring up that that invasion angle happened right away. And of course it, uh, it dies a fiery death. Uh, during that time when you see, or were you even watching raw at the time? How did you hear that? Hey man, what I missed out on was the invasion. I really wasn't watching at the time. And it wasn't until God weeks, maybe a month and a half or two that I realized the idea that they were probably not talking about and didn't want to share was that invasion angle. And I, and I felt badly, you know, I, I felt, you know, a little bit bad for myself. Cause I really think I could have had, I know I would have had fun. You know what I mean? My head was on straight. I'd already kind of put the WCW thing in my rear view mirror. I moved, mentally, you know, and emotionally had kind of moved on. So there was no anger or resentment or anything like that. I wasn't carrying around any baggage. Let's put it that way. And I know if I would have come in there with, feeling the way I felt at that time, um, I could have made that. I mean, I know I could have made that really work well. And unfortunately what they did was so horrible and didn't work well that I almost felt kind of responsible <laughs> in a way because it wasn't, it could have been a great idea. It was just executed poorly. And you know, that would have changed had I known what they wanted to do and, and, and I would have made it in. And I think it would have, I think it could have been a very interesting storyline. So let's fast forward. You wrote in your book, I was in Los Angeles in May of 02 when I got a call from Kevin Nash. He was working for WWE and it was right around this time that WWE changed its name from World Wrestling Federation. Kevin and I were still pretty good friends, though we hadn't talked in a while. And he said, Hey, Eric, there's a rumor going around that you're going to be getting a call from Vince. Would you be interested if he called you? And you said you didn't believe that would happen, but sure, you'd be interested. And there you go. All of a sudden the rumor mill gets sped up a little bit. Were you surprised that Kevin Nash popped up out of the blue to ask that type of question? I mean, clearly somebody put him up to sort of laying the groundwork. Wouldn't you agree? I would imagine. So, um, I would have done that if I, if I was in, in WWE and I knew that Kevin Nash was friends with Eric Bischoff, um, I would have asked Kevin to, uh, feel the situation out just, just, you know, before, before Vince picked up the phone and made the call, I, you know, I would have liked to know had I been in Vince's shoes, I would have liked to know that, you know, at least there's going to be a warm body on the other end of the line and, you know, not a cold fish. So yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I remember actually, I remember exactly where I was standing in LA. I was in, I was on the third street promenade in Santa Monica. I had an apartment just down the street, you know, one block off the beach. 
And I kept that apartment there for a couple of years. And I was, the, you know, I was there on business four or five days a week. It was cheaper to, to rent an apartment, believe it or not, than it was to stay in a hotel. So uh, I was on my way back to my apartment and um, the weekend was coming up. Lori was, my wife was going to be coming in to Santa Monica for the weekend. And I got the phone call from, from Kevin and I, you know, Kevin, Kevin knew, I knew that Kevin knew that it was real. Um, I didn't let myself get too excited or, I didn't overthink it. Let's put it that way. I didn't like build up my defense. I didn't, you know, I wasn't overly excited about it. I, I just thought, okay, great. If this happens, great. It happens. If it doesn't, you know, I'll live to fight another day. It's all good. Well, it does happen. Vince winds up calling you the very next day and, um, whatever you wrote in your book, whatever anxiety or doubt I had, Vince eliminated immediately by saying something to the effect of, I would like to think that if the shoe was on the other foot and you had acquired WWE, we would have been able to work together. How did that phrase strike you? You know, I've said this before because I get, I often get, get asked, you know, what was that con- that first conversation after everything that went down and the, the Monday night wars and the lawsuits and me calling them out and you know, all the crazy stuff that went on. You know, and people are naturally curious, well, what's that first conversation like? And again, I want to, I just want to be careful that I do a good job with this because I, I want to be accurate as I can be. I wasn't overly excited about it, but I, but I, but I was really, really curious and, and I think deep down inside hopeful. That's a good way to put it. I think deep down inside, I was ready, and I, and I had enough time had passed between Jr.'s call and almost a year later, Vince calling me. Uh, enough time had passed where I'd, I'd had even more opportunity to kind of put the past in my rearview mirror and kind of compartmentalize a couple open issues that I had you know, probably even in 2001 when Jim called me and certainly before that, you know, I was angry about the whole AOL Time Warner thing and the deal falling apart and a host of other things that took place during that period of time, some of which I've still never talked about to this day, just the way things were handled internally. Um, but by the time Vince called me, all that stuff was so far in my rearview mirror that I was beginning to forget about it. I just put it out of my mind. And I, and I was deep down inside hopeful that something could work out because I knew, and I had had time to think about it. I knew that if I went to WWE as a character, and by the way, before Vince even called me, you know, after Kevin gave me the heads up and I had, you know, a day and a night to think about it, um, I was absolutely positive that they weren't going to call me to come in for any kind of, you know, management role. I knew that that wasn't going to happen. And I knew if they were calling me, the only reason that they would is from for a talent position. And I thought about that overnight, you know, in anticipation of Vince's call, because I, I wanted to have a clear handle on where my head was at, should the, should Vince offer me a gig. And I realized that because of everything that happened at, at WCW, don't get me wrong, I wasn't I look back at everything now as I'm grateful for everything that happened to me, the good and the bad. 
because it's all experience. Sometimes people overvalue positive experience and undervalue negative experience. But I, I learned far, far more from my mistakes than I ever have from my successes. So I, 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 and that's the way I was looking at things. But I also knew in my heart that I didn't, my, my wrestling story didn't end the way I wanted it to. It didn't end on a high note, in other words. And, and as I thought about that, I was in my office. You know, I knew the call was coming. I was in my office and I was thinking to myself, you know what? This is my opportunity now to finish my book the way I want to finish it. To, to, to add that last chapter to my wrestling history and make sure that that last chapter, whether it lasts six weeks or six months, um, make sure that that last chapter in my wrestling book, not the one I actually wrote, but the, the, the figurative one, uh, ends up on a really, really positive note. Because I knew if I went there as a talent, the one thing I was in control over was my talent and my ability and how hard I worked and what I put into that. And I, not to sound like a pompous ass, but I also knew I was pretty good on camera and I had the ability and my head was straight and I knew that I could do a great job there. And I knew I'd be working with a bunch of people that I'd never worked with before. And that was another important consideration for me, you know, cause I had d done everything I could possibly do with the cast of characters that were at WCW. Uh, there was no real fresh ideas there for me. Had we purchased it and had everything gone through, I think I probably would not have been on camera. I, I, I kind of played everything out as best I could. Um, but I knew when I got to WWE, if I had gone to WWE, I knew I'd be working with, you know, Steve Austin and The Undertaker and John Cena and Randy Orton and a whole bunch of other guys that I'd never had a chance to work with before. So that was my mindset, waiting for the phone call. So when he calls and he says, you know, I would have liked to think we would have been able to work together. How does that statement strike you? I mean, are you sort of on your heels with the idea that he would just open up with that? Is that something you even thought would be addressed or what was your expectation of that conversation? Like not necessarily from your side, but from his side, you know, I, I didn't have any expectation and, and I think it's just my, my nature, I think is to keep my expectations pretty low. I, I, I've learned the hard way because I'm a very optimistic. I mean, I'm almost optimistic to a fault. I think I'm capable of doing anything. <laughs> and there are some things that I probably shouldn't try, but you know, you can't tell me that when I get excited about an idea, I just, I, I always look at the brightest side of any opportunity that, that comes my way. Um, but, and I, and I've learned over the years to manage that and not let my expectations get too out of whack because it clouds your judgment. And it, it, when you, when you allow your expectations to kind of create emotion and now you're reacting emotionally instead of logically, um, you can make mistakes. And I was aware of my tendency to do that sometimes. So I kept my expectations very low. Uh, but here's the thing, man. And I, I probably won't be able to articulate this as well as I wish I could. But when when the phone, when he called, and I knew it was him, and obviously he's got a very distinctive voice, and you know, and I I can't remember exactly how everything went, but it was kind of like, hey Eric, how are you? You know, in that Vince baritone, and and 
And then he said exactly what I wrote in the book, and if not word for word, pretty damn close. And it wasn't what he said, Conrad. It was the way he said it. It was the exact opposite of my conversation with Jim Ross a year earlier, where Jim was um, indifferent. Dismissive, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Indifferent is probably the best way to say it. Vince was so sincere when he said that to me. And it was the first thing that he really said that I knew the minute he, he, he finished his sentence, I knew in my mind I was going to go to work for him. Wow. Because it was just, and I'm, I'm telling you, it was that fast. I was right back to being the guy that was making a decision based on emotions and not logic anymore. You know, I had thought it through. I thought I went through the, you know, the logical analysis of the whole opportunity, which is how I ended up with the idea of, you know what, if I want to be in control of my own destiny and the way people remember me in professional wrestling, then I want to end that on a high note, which I knew I could do in WWE as a talent. So I had thought through that and I was already pretty prepared to make the decision to go just based on that logic. Um, but when I, again, when, when Vince was so gracious and I used the word elegant because that's really what it was, um, I, I knew as soon as he finished, I went, okay, fuck it. I'm going to work for this guy. He, we didn't even talk about ideas or money or anything. You know, I just, I knew right then I was going to go to work for him. And we, you know, we talked a little bit more. I didn't ask him and I didn't ask him what his ideas were. I didn't ask him the role he wanted me to come in. I think he he suggested it to me later on in the conversation. So I had a pretty good idea, you know, what it was they wanted me to do. And I knew that that was a good role for me. Um, the one thing he did ask me, and I thought, well, this, this might get me into some trouble with Vince based on what I had heard about him. He said, uh, is there anything you won't do? <laughs> and, and, and I, I paused for a minute because nobody's, you know, nobody's ever accused me of not wanting to do anything. I mean, if it's, I mean, it didn't matter to me. I put myself into some pretty bizarre situations on camera. And if, if it makes sense and it sounds like something that the audience will dig up, I was up for anything really. But I, I, so I paused and I said, well, and this was true. You know, I, I wanted to be totally honest with him. I didn't want to go into the relationship kind of holding back important things, you know, I said, well, Vince, to tell you the truth, the only thing I won't do is move to Connecticut. You know, I, again, not having a total picture of what they were interested in or, and I didn't know if their talent, you know, their peripheral talent, like I refer to people like me, you know, general managers and referees and things like that, you know, if they wanted them to live, you know, near the East coast or whatever, I had no idea what his expectations were. But when he asked me, you know, is there anything you won't do? I said, yeah, about the only thing I won't do is move to Connecticut. He just kind of chuckled. He was probably thinking to himself, you fucking clown. I wouldn't ask you to move to Stanford anyway. I only want to see you at TV and then I'm done with you is probably what he was thinking when I said that. But um, he just kind of chuckled and said, great, well, let's let's put the wheels in motion. And then I got another call from John Taylor, who I, you know, come to know and respect and, and like as a as a friend. Um, John Taylor and, and I kind of worked through 99 percent of it. I gave it to my attorney to finish off and off we, off we went. All right, guys, let's run our last time out right now, because I've got a very important question to ask you. Have you looked at your interest rate lately? You see the average interest rate on credit card debt is over 19% APR. 
So I want to ask you one more time, what are the rates on your credit cards? Now you don't need to be a financial expert to know that consolidating that debt into a low fixed rate can save you thousands in interest. So pay off your high interest rate credit cards with a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream. Check this out. You can get a rate as low as 5.95% APR with auto pay, which is much lower than the national average interest rate on credit card debt. You can even get a loan from 5,000 all the way to hundred thousand dollars with absolutely no fees. The application is 100% online and you can even get your money as soon as the same day you apply. Lightstream believes that when you have good credit, you deserve a low rate and great service. I have had a phenomenal experience with Lightstream. You've heard me talk about it ad nauseum years ago. I'm going to guess it was like 2014. I found a great car I wanted to get. I decided I wanted to finance it. Money was cheap, but nobody was cheaper than Lightstream. It was the cheapest rate I ever had on a car and it was so easy. I did it at lightstream.com. They overnighted me a check. I negotiated like a cash buyer. I got the best deal I ever had on a car and I got the cheapest financing and lightstream.com made it possible. And right now for our listeners, we can make sure that we can help you with your credit card debt in a way that you never thought possible. Apply today at lightstream.com slash 83 weeks, and you'll get an additional interest rate discount. That's great. It's an unbelievable rate already. And now you get an additional discount. Why wouldn't you do this? Go to lightstream.com slash 83 weeks. That's lightstream.com slash 83 weeks. And you'll get that additional discount one more time. It's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M.com, lightstream.com slash 83 weeks. Of course, this is subject to credit approval. The rate includes a half a percent auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash 83 weeks for more information. From the 83 weeks episode, the AWA. Vern is uh, the patriarch of the AWA. When was the first time you met Vern? You know, I met Vern. Well, technically, the first time I met him was at a high school wrestling event. It was one of our regional tournaments. We're in a um, in a school district in Mound, Minnesota, and that's actually where Vern lived, uh, which is just west of Minneapolis, probably about twenty five or thirty miles. <clears throat> and that was where uh, Vern went to school, actually in Mound, Minnesota. So he was very, you know, Vern was a big supporter of, of amateur wrestling, high school wrestling in particular. And he came out to the regional tournaments, and I think I had uh, placed in a top five or something like that. And and he came along and shook all of our hands and congratulated us. Um, I didn't meet him individually, but you know what I mean. He met a big group of us. We all got to shake his hand and say hello. But that was that was the that was the first time I remember. So how did you go about uh, hanging around and, and being in the locker room and being a part of the AWA as an organization? How did that come to be? Well, I mean, a lot of things happened, you know, in between. I, I had, you know, I, that was the first time I met Vern. I think I was fifteen. <clears throat> Wrestled all through high school. Still, you know, big fan of of, of Vern's and the AWAs. My buddies and I used to drive pile in a car we'd all go drive it out to you know Vern's home and couldn't get close to it he lived way you know quite a ways back off the road he had a big piece of property on Lake Minnetonka but we'd all drive around hoping we'd get a look at Vern Gagne but in terms of you know getting into the office that was you know a series of coincidences really um 
Sonny Ono and I had developed a game called uh, Ninja Star Wars, I believe was the name of the game. Produced about 5,000 of them. <laughs> had no idea what we were going to do with them. Once they got shipped to us, we had them manufactured over in uh, South Korea. But had about 5,000 of these uh, games manufactured. Shipped them all to us. And they finally arrived, and we had them stuffed in every every nook and cranny that we could find in our houses. And, you know, we had them in our neighbor's house and our neighbor's garage and our friends, our relatives were all acting as, you know, <laughs> satellite warehouses for all these games. We figured out we couldn't really sell them the way we had planned. So I picked up the phone and called, uh, office. And I looked them up in the phone book, didn't have their phone number, just looked up Minneapolis boxing and wrestling club put a call in, explained to the receptionist who I was and, you know, that I wanted to speak to Vern Guy. Of course, I dropped the amateur wrestling, you know, card because I knew that that would probably get a positive reaction from Vern, or at least I hoped it would. And sure enough, it did. Got on the phone and introduced myself and told him I had a project I wanted to come in and talk to him about. And he said, sure, kid, come on in. You know, two days later, I was sitting in his office. So it's a big deal. You know, you, you think this could be your big break and obviously you're looking for a way to launch the new business. Um, I'm curious when you go make the pitch, does Sonny tag along? No, Sonny wasn't there. And you know, it, it was funny because I was still working for a company called blue ribbon food service. And I was, I was a sales manager and typically my days would start at seven 30 or eight in the morning. And then we would have a sales meeting every day, five days a week with our respective sales teams <clears throat> and then everybody would break for the day usually about two o'clock and then we'd start making our calls generally in the evening so i had about a three or four hour break in the middle of the afternoon and it was right after uh, our son garrett was born so i went home to check on him and check on Lori and just kill an hour or so grab a bite to eat before i got busy again and at that time, AWA had a show on ESPN five days a week. And I came home and, you know, turned on television and went to ESPN to watch, you know, all-star wrestling, kind of as background noise, really, not to sit down and watch it, but just to have it on. And as I was watching it, you know, talking to Lori, I, I saw some commercials that they weren't like for soap or beer or cars or anything, and they weren't local commercials. Um, they were like, you know, Suzanne Summers and her thigh master. If you remember that a couple different commercials like that. And I realized, now I didn't know what a per inquiry or direct sale was at that time. Um, they were still relatively new in media, I, I but I noticed here. that there were all these commercials where you could buy the product, you know, by calling a 1-800 line, placing your order, and then they would be shipped to you. And it occurred to me watching those commercials that day. That, wow, you know, if I could ever get to Vern Gagne, you know, knowing that he's got a huge wrestling audience, it's on late in the afternoon, so kids coming home from school, you know, around the country will probably be tuning in to wrestling, or at least a good portion of them. <clears throat> I thought, what a better place, you know, to to cut a commercial for this Ninja Star Wars games. And if, if I could talk Vince into selling it, you know, on his air, I'd split the profit with him. So that was the deal. And once I made the appointment with Vern, I, you know, it, I didn't really need Sonny to come in and help me pitch. I was pretty comfortable doing that. So I know I went in solo. So you make your, uh, your trek over to the office. And, uh, I think everybody knows by now that AWA's business was, uh, on the downslope a little bit at the time. Tell us about the office and what your impressions of the office were and 
uh, you know, just carry me through that day in that first meeting. Yeah, no, you know, it's funny. I didn't realize because I wasn't obviously paying attention to the business of the wrestling business. You know, I was aware of WWF and, you know, that they were going national. And I certainly knew the distinction between them and what Vern was doing as a regional promoter. But I didn't really, you know, I wasn't really a a hardcore fan. I didn't really understand what was going on in all the different territories, you know, since Vince, you know, had taken his product nationally. So I didn't know that guys like Vern and Don Owens and Jerry Jarrett and so many others um, were really having a difficult financial time. And getting into the the AWA offices, it wasn't apparent. You know, the offices were really nice. Or in a part of just barely west of Minneapolis, as you're getting into the sub suburbs, little area called Golden Valley, which is a beautiful area, right across the street from Betty Crocker and Pillsbury and a lot of big banking systems uh, in in Minneapolis. So it was in a very nice area, big office. I think it was formerly a church in a, a series of offices att- attached to the church. You couldn't tell by looking at it. It didn't look like a church, but it was at one point. And the big church area is where the studio was, and the offices looked just like any other offices. They were nice. Um, I, I got in, nice big lobby, you know, looked looked great, uh, very impressive, and I was escorted back to Vern's office, and Vern's office was really long. It must have been 60, 80 feet long. I mean, it was really long probably about 30, 40 feet wide. And he had a, a conference table, you know, about 20 feet from his desk that had to be a good 15 or 20 feet long. And there was probably 20 chairs all around it. And I got there because I was, I was excited and, and nervous, I guess, uh, anxious, all of the above. And I got in, I brought a couple of my games with me. And then everybody that worked in the office, Wahoo McDaniels, Ray Stevens, Keep in mind, I only knew those guys from television. So, you know, all of a sudden they walk in the room and introduce themselves. And, you know, some of the office staff were there. There were probably three or four secretaries that were there. And and uh, I think the accountant came in. So there's just everybody that happened to be in the office. And naturally, Vernon Gregg were, were in the room. And I found myself, you know, explaining the game. And I took the, the, the game out and I showed them how it worked and then I put a, a a vest because that's what the game was. It came with kind of a felt vest with a, a ninja character kind of silk screen on the front of it. And then you put on a headband that had a very p- flexible kind of plastic eye shield to protect your eyes. And then each game came with three red stars and three white stars. And they were big. You know, they're probably the size of your palm, I guess. And they were weighted down. They were They were padded. But they were weighted down in the middle with a small washer just to give it some weight so you could throw it and get some distance. And I put these vests on and, you know, put everybody's eye protections on and started chasing people around the desk playing Ninja Star Wars. And the place was cracking up. Everybody was having fun. You know, the girls, the office staff was there and they all got involved and everybody, everybody got a pretty good kick out of it. And, and Vince, or excuse me, Vince, Vern agreed to do it. Wow. That's awesome, man. So he agrees to, uh, to help you promote the product and and what sort of deal do you guys cut and put together? Yeah. So what I said to Vern is, look, I've manufactured the games, the games at that point, I think they cost us about six bucks a piece, five or six bucks a piece, uh, was our cost. I said, look, I'll, I've already paid for the games. Um, I'll produce a 30 second commercial 
you air the commercial, I'll do the fulfillment, and then we'll split the profit 50-50. And that was the deal. And, and, and like I said, he went for it. That's awesome. So, I mean, how did the game sell? Unfortunately, they sold too well. Um, this was my first foray into a per inquiry or direct sale business. Right. And what I didn't know <laughs> that I wish I would have known is that, you know, I was really successful in marketing towards kids and kids would order these things. And of course their parents didn't know it. So I'd go, you know, I'd ship them UPS or however we shipped them, whichever was you know, the most affordable way to cheap them or ship them at the time. And I would get about 30 or 40% of them returned. And by the time they got returned to me, the packaging was all, you know, trashed. The boxes were crushed. And I had, now I got a, a, a shipping charge to and from that I ended up incurring. So I sold a ton of games, but the return rate is what killed me. It, it really ate up all my profit margin because I didn't anticipate it. And, it, it ended up costing us some, you know, we didn't, it, we didn't lose money on the proposition, but we certainly didn't make as much as we had hoped either. Well, let's talk about, uh, how the relationship, you know, evolves because obviously you didn't just do the ninja stars. Somehow you wound up becoming a part of the company. Tell me how that transition happened. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was during the time that we were running the commercials and like I said, they were doing really fairly well. And probably in terms of the business that Vern was generating with his commercial inventory, it might've been doing better than anything else that he had going at the time. So we, it was, you know, it was a positive vibe. You know, everybody was pretty excited about the fact that we, you know, we had came up with an idea for a game, figured out how to have them manufactured, you know, for a reasonable price. And then came up with this, you know, order and fulfillment plan that was working reasonably well for what it was. And I think um, there was a guy there by the name of Mike Shields. And Mike had previously worked for Jerry Jarrett down in, in Nashville and had come to work for Vern, I think, about a year or so before I got there. Mike was really the – he was really the operations manager. Now, he, he had a strong background in television production, so he oversaw all of the production. He didn't get involved creatively at all. But he oversaw the, the production of the events, uh, his television events, as well as all the interviews and everything that took place, the edit market specific promos that had to be done and inserted in all the different markets, driving live event business and things like that. So Mike was like the operations guy that oversaw that process. But he also oversaw um, the sales and syndication side of the business commercial sales and syndication. And I think, you know, Mike recognized that I was a hustler as, as a young guy. Um, I, I was a, you know, natural salesman. And I think that was pretty easy for Mike to pick up on right away. And they needed, AWA needed somebody to go out and sell their syndication because nobody was doing it. And I think, you know, Mike looked at me as somebody who was enthusiastic and excited to, you know, be even remotely involved in the wrestling business. Obviously I was a fan and just given my background in sales, offered me a job in syndication. Truth be known, I didn't even know what the fuck syndication was. Right. He said, "How'd you like to? How'd you like to head up our our syndication sales?" And I, I said, "Absolutely." What is it? <laughs> I don't even know what that is. And he said, "Look, you just take you know demo tapes of our show around to, you know, independent 
independent television stations around the country and convince them to air our, our show so that we can promote live events in that market. And I thought, well, hell, it's no different than what I'm doing now. Sales is sales, you know, whether you're selling, you know, commercial meat products or you're selling vacuum cleaners or you're selling life insurance. Sales is sales. Once you know your product, it's really all the same. So I was, I was excited about it. I resigned from my job as a sales manager for, for a food processor and went to work selling syndication. So how, um, what was the strategy? You know, we've talked about, you know, Turner television sales before and how uh, wrestling was a tough sell compared to some of the other properties, but now you're out just selling wrestling, um, sort of share us what, share with us what the pitch was, uh, what the objections you ran into were, who your like target sponsors were just chat me up about that. Yeah, I didn't really get too involved in the sponsorship side of things. My focus really was on taking the show, the AWA product, going down. For example, I'd go to Mason City, Iowa, KIMT. I don't know why I remember it, but I do. Um, I, I went down there and met the general manager of the television station, the local station there. I think it was an NBC affiliate, by the way. Uh, NBC or ABC, I can't remember. But I uh, went down, met the general manager who introduced me to the program director. And the program director, you know, the general manager generally made all of the decisions, but the program directors had a lot of influence. They were the ones that, you know, knew the local market and what they could sell in the local market to, to local advertisers. So I met with the program director in that particular market. And, you know, the good news is <clears throat> most of the then, you know, most of those people had grown up you know, watching AWA. They were all very familiar with it and remembered the AWA when it was in its heyday, you know, in the 70s and in the early 80s before, you know, things turned around and, and Vince took WWF nationwide. So, you know, Vern had a pretty good reputation and it wasn't that hard of a sell normally. Um, that was generally the case throughout the upper Midwest. You know, I'm talking about obviously Minnesota, North South Dakota, Iowa, Nebraska, <clears throat> a little bit of Illinois, Wisconsin, you know, that was my territory. And all of those people were familiar with AWA, but they had just kind of lost touch with it. And like I said, nobody was actively selling it. So it, it was easy for the property to go off their radar. So when I would come into a local market, and again, these were most of them, you know, really small market, Kearney, Nebraska, you know, it wasn't always in the big cities. A lot of often in, in really, really small markets, you know, Rockford, Illinois, and Joliet, Illinois, and Des Moines, Iowa, places like that. And, you know, it was pretty much the same thing, you know, introduce myself. I, I'd call and make an appointment, obviously. Once I got there, I'd introduce myself and, and I'd pitch them the product. And, you know, my, my sales points at that point were, you know, most people in the Midwest, even though there's this WWF product, you know, they grew up watching AWA and that's their hometown, you know, wrestling show. And it's kind of like the home team versus, you know, the away team kind of thing. And most of them, you know, I would say I was successful hmm, probably 60 70% of the time I took their syndication when I took over, when I started, I had, I think Vern had 32 individual stations around the upper Midwest that carried AWA within my first six or eight months. I think I had it up to 75 or 80. Wow. That's awesome, man. Yeah. You, um, you wrote in your book about, you know, how they went from just 32 stations to a good deal more than that. And 
eventually about a year after you start, you said Mike Shields came to you and said, why don't you come to Las Vegas and sit in on one of the shows and watch what we do? Uh, what'd you think of that when he lays that pitch to you? I was so excited because again, I was not, I, I was kind of autonomous. You know, I worked for the AWA. I had my office was there and all of that, but I wasn't really, in, I mean, not really, I wasn't involved at all in, you know, producing the television or watching the, you know, product being, being produced. I wasn't obviously aware or involved in any way, shape or form of the creative side of things. So it was still all such a major mystery to me. And for me in particular, I'm always, I've always been kind of a curious sort, you know, I don't like when, for example, and I always use this as an analogy, you know, uh, I had to, I had to literally sit down with a salesman for microwave ovens about 30 years ago and ask him to explain to me how they worked because I used one every day, but I had no idea how it worked. So I've always had a real curiosity about how things work, especially things that you use all the time. And television was really a big question mark for me because, you know, as a child of the sixties, you know, I was born in 55, but you know, by 1960, 61, 62, television was my life, right? It was a big deal. Families all gathered around the television set at night. And it was a, it was a much more communal experience, obviously, than it is now. So I was fascinated with television. And television, when I was a kid, was still relatively new. And it was like a microwave oven. Everybody had a television set, but nobody really understood, especially me, how does that work? How do, how do you get – from a stage or a sound stage or a football field or whatever into people's homes. What is that process? And when Mike invited me to go to Las Vegas and actually be a part of production, it was like, oh, man, this that, that was the most awesome thing for me because now I would finally get a chance to learn how this product you know, was such a big part of all of our lives and still is to this day, but especially back then um, – I'm finally going to get a chance to see how this shit actually works. And it was, it was really exciting for me. All right, folks, that's going to wrap us up today. I really appreciate everybody tuning in today for a very special best of edition of 83 weeks. I know you were hoping for new content today. I was too. We had penciled in when worlds collide today. We will try to revisit that another time. I want to keep us on track for next week. And really, I just want to punish Eric a little bit. We're going to get to Clash of the Champions 29. I can't believe that's even a real show. Let me just run this down for you so you've got a good idea of what Eric is in for. We're going to punish him for missing last week. How's that? This is a real show from November 16th in Jacksonville, Florida, 1994. Stars and Stripes, which by the way is the Patriot and Marcus Alexander Bagwell, are going to take on Pretty Wonderful, which I admit is a pretty cool name. Paul Roma and Paul Orndorff. Then we've got Johnny B. Bad and the fucking Honky Tonk Man. That's a real thing. I feel like we've talked about this television championship feud with his enjoyment of firing Honky Tonk for a lot of time. We'll get to revisit some of that here next week as well. The Harlem Heat are going to be in there with the Nasty Boys. We've also got Vader working with Dustin Rhodes, and that just screams hard-hitting action. But then check this out. Unbelievable. Steve Austin is going to wrestle Jim Duggan and the match is 17 seconds and Austin loses. But then in our main event with Mr. T as a special guest referee. Yes, that was really a thing. We've got Hulk Hogan sting and Dave Sullivan. What? Taking on the faces of fear. 
It's the butcher avalanche and Kevin Sullivan. So the former brother Brudai, the former earthquake and Kevin Sullivan on one side, Hogan sting and Dave Sullivan. I hope you hear my confusion in my voice. That's what we're doing next week. And then we'll round out the rest of November with some fun November anniversary shows, including world war three, the very first one from 1995 and world war three from 1997. And eventually we'll work in some uh, comments about when worlds collide in 1994. We hope you've enjoyed the show today. Appreciate you supporting us. And if you want to uh, wish Eric, well, he's on Twitter at E Bischoff. He's probably got it at both ends. Whew. But he's going to be better this weekend. Starcast 4 in Baltimore. Hope you can join us. Use promo code Eric. Save yourself a bundle of cash. Come meet some of the legends for really, really unique photo ops that you never thought possible. Where else can you get your picture made with the Yeti and full gimmick? Or a Shockmaster where it looks like you're busting through the wall? Or Sting in the red, white, and blue? Or Muda with the paint? And Jim Crockett? Come on, man. How in the world do we get Jim Crockett out there? And if you're a fan of AEW, all the great stars will be there. You don't want to miss it. And if you can't make it to Baltimore, no big deal. Pre-order right now, and you'll get StarCast 1, 2, and 3 at StarCastOnFight.com. So when you order when you order StarCast 4, you get 1, 2, and 3 included. What a great value. Check it out. StarCast.com. Use promo code ERIC or StarCastOnFight.com. Hope to see you this weekend in Baltimore. It's StarCast 4 in Baltimore. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.